Father, we're asking that the, uh, the scales, the blinders of our eyes would be removed and you would allow us to see you for all that you are. We know that with our uh, finite eyes and our flawed faith, it will just be a glimpse, but even that is sufficient to transform and save. So we thank you in advance for your faithfulness. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in this election year, maybe more than others, there's been a lot of discussion about the character of candidates, right? It's hard to get through a day, an article, without that coming up. Integrity, past reputation, you're familiar with it. And it just confirms to us, as much as we want to say what someone does is the most important, not who they are, and sometimes you'll hear that, right? It's really not true. Now, there's something in us by instinct that goes, no, it really matters who someone is, who someone is, their character. And the reason that is true, because it matters to God. It is God. We're spending this summer asking a similar question about our unelected official, God. Um, we're asking questions, who is he? And does who he is matter to us? Is it just this sort of thing up there in the land of theology? Or does it really matter Monday morning, Friday night? And the Bible would say it does if we can get in on it, if we can understand it. And so we spent the summer looking at the character of God through the book of Psalms. We've looked at the compassion of God, and we've looked at the protection of God, we've looked at the judgment of God, and this evening, I wanted to bring us to the holiness of God. Holiness of God. And right off the bat, I think we have to admit we're conflicted about this topic. We don't really know how we feel about this topic. Um, I've mentioned before that the Psalms are songs. And so basically, you know, there were poems or songs that were sung corporately. So just like you're at a concert and the artist decides to lead everybody in an acapella to everybody singing, or you're at the ball game and you're singing Welcome to the Jungle or We Will Rock You or whatever it is. You know, it's a crowd singing. It's not often you hear someone singing about the holiness of God. You just don't hear random crowds coming together singing about God's holiness. Now, maybe you'll hear Amazing Grace. In a moment, we'll get to how you can't really sing that unless you understand holiness. But we're conflicted, and I have this quote in your bulletin that I think just articulates it well from uh, theologian R.C. Sproul. We tend to have mixed feelings about the holy. There is a sense in which we are at the same time attracted to it and repulsed by it. Something draws us toward it, while at the same time we want to run away from it. We can't seem to decide which way we want it. Part of us yearns for the holy, while part of us despises it. We can't live with it, and we can't live without it. I think that's good. There is part of us, right, that is drawn to moral beauty and that sort of thing. We, we want to be near it. There's another part of it. The closer you get to it, you're exposed. You're revealed as not having it yourself. And so even repulsed by it. 
And so the question, I think, gets to is, how do we, how do we deal with this? How do we wrestle with it? it? We see a song like this, a psalm like this, and we, I think, in our minds go, well, the psalmists were special people. You know, they liked the holiness of God just instinctively. They're not regular folk like that. That's not true. In fact, last week we looked at Psalm 88 and we saw it. No, just like us, they struggle big time. So how can the holiness of God get you singing? How does it become song-worthy? That's what I want to look at in the time that we have together. And there's many things that could answer that, but I think there's two in particular that are given to us. And that is the holiness of God results in a just world, and it also helps us see gifts of grace. A just world and gifts of grace. So let's look at those two things together. Most everyone I know longs for a just world. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian here, you're not a Christian, if you're another religious faith, long for a more just world. Just this week, you could read the story of a four-year-old girl, um, you know, found with bruises all over her, and the police ask her, what is her name? And she says, it's idiot, because that's all she's heard from the boyfriend of her stepmother. You can hear the story of the continual civil war in Syria and how the UN says, can we just have 48 hours of no bombing so we can deliver supplies to people, millions of people without supplies? I mean, you know, each, each of you could add five other things, right? This is just one week. We long for justice. But here's the thing. I think, uh, I think in our minds, we, we accept of God of justice, but not so much a God of holiness. We're down with this idea that, yeah, I want justice and I want a God of justice, but when it gets to a God of holiness, we're like, I don't know about that. I don't know how I feel about that. And what you see in this psalm here is the justice flows from the holiness. That's what we're seeing here. I mean, the refrain of the psalm is clearly holiness. The refrain in a song is that part that they repeat over and over again, right? Well, if you look at this psalm, four times you find reference to holiness, right? Holy is he, holy is he, his holy mountain. The Lord our God is holy. It's repeated. The psalmist is trying to give us a message. The primary thing that he's putting before us is God in heaven is holy. And in case we missed it, he gives us all these neat images. He says that the Lord is enthroned above the cherubim. Now, you might wonder, what in the world are cherubim? We actually sang. Uh, sometimes the impression is given that they're sort of like heavenly cupids, you know, like little plump angels. That It's much better to think of them more like if you've seen uh, the movie Thor, the gatekeeper. If you've seen that, the gatekeeper, right? His name's Heimdall, guardian of Asgard. He's a majestic, imposing figure. Cherubims are depicted as having a body of a lion, a giant wingspan, and a face of a human being. And then you have the Lord seated on his throne, and they are at his side. And when they're not on his side, they, they're said to have formed the chariot that he rides in, the war chariot. And so these aren't plump cupids. You know, these are fierce, holy creatures, and he is enthroned above them. 
This is the image that we're given here. And then we're also told about the Ark of the Covenant. Some of you may remember the Ark of the Covenant is this four-by-two box that God put his presence, attached his presence to, but the top of it had a cover, and on that cover were cherubim. And on that cover as well, it sat in a place called the Holy of Holies. So you have this holy object with the Ten Commandments in the middle with cherubim on the top, and it's in the Holy of Holies, and you know what we're told? That it's actually the footstool of God. Now, if anybody touched those holy objects in the Old Testament when they were supposed to, they immediately died. Think about what's under your feet. Normally, what's under our feet is the thing that we don't really regard much. You know, what's dirty, what's unclean, what's under God's feet? Glorious holiness. It's because he's so holy that his footstool has to be glorious and holy. That's another image we're given. And then we're given the, the image of a holy mountain. Maybe you went on vacation this summer and you had a chance to see some incredible mountains. Now, it's hard to see a mountain, whether you're here a person of faith or not. In fact, if you're not a person of faith, that feeling you get when you look at a mountain and you go, that's majestic, that's the feeling you get when you come to know the God of the Bible. He's majestic and he's holy. And we're told that, you know, it, we're told of this mountain Zion, which represents many things in the Bible. Jerusalem, it can talk about the city of God. It's the dwelling place of God's people. And on that hill, on that southeastern hill of Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, David built a citadel, a fortress. And so you have the image of God reigning over this enthronement, this city. And so, no doubt, in this psalm, the psalmist is trying to get to us this idea that God is holy. Have you heard it? Can you see it? There was no one like him in absolute spotless purity. But I want you to notice, even though who he is would be enough to get us singing if we could really see him, it's not just who he is, it's what he does with his holiness. Now, if you go to verse 1, it starts and says, uh, it, it tells us about the kingship of God in verse 1 that the Lord reigns. And this psalm is a collection of psalms that focus on God as king. So the themes are coming together here. He's not just holy, but he's a king that reigns in holiness. And the way that holiness shows itself is injustice. We might think of holiness in this sort of abstract way where God is great and holy and other, but what the psalmist is trying to tell us here is the way that you know he is holy is because he is just. We read, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Someone can have, let's take power for an example. You can have uh, absolute power. But absolute power isn't neutral. Absolute power can be used in really bad ways or really good ways. A dictator is going to use it in really bad ways. A righteous person is going to use it in really good ways. Absolute holiness isn't static either. Absolute holiness has to act. It has to move. It acts in the way that God acts in his absolute holiness, we're told here, is in a reign of justice. And what I want us to see is where that justice begins. We're told here that the Lord in his holiness exalts over Zion. That's the people of God. 
the people that embrace God and believe in God. And so justice starts at home. Israel was supposed to be a model to the nations of what justice looked like. They were to be a model to the world so people would see it and go, I want to go and be there. And people did. In fact, when the Israelites got liberated from Egypt, even before that model society, it says a mixed multitude, nations left with them because they saw something in that community that thought, I see your God and I see you and I'm attracted by it. I want to go. But if we go to the ultimate book of holiness in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, all about the holiness of God, and we go to the chapter, chapter 19, and if you went to your Bibles, you know, these aren't inspired, but it says over in the title, the Lord is holy, so we know we're going to the right place. You read about the holiness of God, and it's almost seamless as he's talking about the holiness of God. Immediately, he starts to talk about societal justice. Let me give you an example. Leviticus 19, talking about the holiness of God, and then it moves into, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as you love yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord. In 2013, the Department of Housing uh, did a study, Housing and Urban Justice, and, and they, uh, one of the things they found out that was uh, white folk, when they go to look for apartments, are shown 11 to 12% more places than someone who's black, Asian, or Hispanic. So it wouldn't be uncommon that someone who's black, Asian, or Hispanic would say, uh, call up and say, uh, I saw an apart- I'd like to come see some apartments, and an apartment that was available just an hour ago for a white person that they didn't take is not now available. Right, the option. So this is the, our Department of Housing that understands this. Injustice, right? And so the community of faith then becomes someone, a place where people come into and go, this is different in here. People care about justice and maybe housing, which is why we spend time with Habitat, right? And our diaconate gets us involved with housing because that issue matters. Are we tr- treating, as we get into these discussions, and I'm, you know, I'm really not trying to get into the politics of aliens or uh, not, I don't mean, you know what I mean, sojourners, people that come in, or walls being built. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is God says flat out this for the people of faith. When you see someone that is new to your place, this is what I want of you. I want you to treat them justly. I want you to love them like you love yourself. Now, there's lots of implications to that, right? Some of you may be here going, well, if I love them, if I treat them justly, they need to go back. If they're not legal, someone else might say, if I treat them justly, I've got to get them a house. My point is this. Are you thinking about holiness leading to justice? Or another example. We could go to the book of Leviticus where God talks about those that would sacrifice children. Those that would sacrifice children would be put to death, child sacrifice. Well, we might not have those sorts of sacrifice, but we have gender-based abortion, right, around the world, especially with women and girls, girls, females, aborted simply because of their gender. And so the people of God, and I have friends that have done this, would say, no, please don't do that. We'll, We'll take your daughters. We'll adopt your daughters. Holiness leads to justice and 
I just, let me close by saying this. For a church to extol the holiness of God, but be passive about justice, and then wonder why the culture doesn't like the holiness of God, well, there's your answer, right? If we want the culture to begin to honor the holiness of God, they need to begin to see justice in the community of faith. So, that's this connection between holiness and justice that ought to get us singing. I bring it up because I know a lot of people can sing songs about justice. But you've got to sing a song about holiness first, about God's holiness. But let's move to the second point, and that is gifts of grace. Now, we've got to define this, grace. There's lots of things. You've been watching the Olympics. You'll hear this athlete is graceful, right? Or someone grace is composure. But that's not what we're talking about here. The grace we're talking about is when you get something you don't deserve. When you really screwed up big time, you messed up big time, you've got no claim at all, and someone gives you mercy when you don't deserve it. That's what we're talking about, grace. One of the effects of holiness... One of the chief effects is you begin to understand you need grace. In fact, you can't understand grace without first understanding God's holiness. It's just impossible. You can't understand some's a gift until you know that you need it, right? And even the holiest people need it. It's interesting, Moses is mentioned and Aaron is mentioned, right? Moses, the great priest, Aaron, the high priest of Israel, Samuel, the prophet, the holy men of Israel were told that they kept the statues, that they prayed to the Lord, but we also get this little word that's very important where God's saying how great they are, but then he says, and then you were forgiving to them, Lord. Because guess what? They were sinners like you and me. You've heard me say this before, but if you haven't been here before, I want to say it. The Bible is unique in that with all of its heroes, it shows their flaws. It isn't a book like, be like Moses, be like Daniel, be like Peter, be like the heroes. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the only Savior. So while we extol holiness, we realize these brothers and sisters needed grace just like us. I mean, Moses and Aaron were not allowed into the promised land because Moses struck a rock twice. Now, you might be going, what in the world? Let me explain it. But I think it's going to get at just the precision of God's holiness. You know, God meant to give Israel's, they're thirsty, they're, you know, sitting there and they're really thirsty, and they have had a long history together. You know, maybe you had a long family vacation or you went off with some friends on a long trip and it's been just brewing the whole time, you know, and you're just like, just finally lose it. Well, if anybody you feel like had a right to lose it was Moses. Just read about Israel. They're in the deserts complaining all the time. God says, I want you to do this. I want you to strike this rock once. Water will come out for them. And Moses just has this moment, and what we're told is Aaron's in on it too because he can't get into the promised land. Moses goes, here's your water, you rebellious people. Boom. Boom. Hits it twice. God says, "Uh, there's your water. Thank you, Moses and Aaron. Can I talk to you for a second? Um. I appreciate you, but you won't be going into the promised land with the people because you struck the rock twice. It wasn't their place to be like God. God was even being protective over his onerous people. It made me think about, you know, this past week, we got a ticket in Georgetown parking. And... um, 
And, uh, you know, that's a tough place to park if you're wanting to shop. And so we got the ticket, and we, we had the actual, you know, we, we weren't just trying to get by. We bought a thing, right? We had the thing, but we also had the ticket. And I looked. The difference between the ticket and our parking thing was two minutes. Two minutes. And when I saw that, I couldn't help but go, it's just two minutes. I mean, couldn't there be a grace period? How many of you here would say that two minutes is a good, nice grace period? Anybody? <laughs> How many would say three minutes? Five minutes? Ten minutes? Twenty minutes? Oh, well, well, I don't know, right? The problem we get into, right, is we can't agree on the grace period. You know, we can't agree on the holiness and the standard. You know, one person's going to say, well, two minutes is reasonable. Another person's going to say, hey, you know, you paid for your parking. Show up one minute earlier and you won't get a ticket. But here we have a standard, this idea of holiness. Well, God's standard, as you imagine, has to be a standard that doesn't fluctuate or he wouldn't be just. On one hand, you can't go over here and go, I want a just God for a just world. I hate all the things that I think happen, except when it comes to me. I'd like this. But he does this one better. The gospel tells us that basically, going back to the parking, that God pays for the ticket, and then he purchases a permanent spot for you, and then he buys you the car of your dreams. You know, this is what the gospel teaches, that the Son of God comes, he takes the penalty for our failures to live up to the standard, to live up to the justice. On the cross, this is what the cross is about, right? Jesus isn't just suffering there and showing what it's like to be a really good guy suffering. Wrath and justice is being poured out upon him, which he volunteered for, which the Father and the Spirit with a broken heart did for the love of us. Because how can you be in the presence of a holy God with sin? You can't. It's just illogical. And you could at this point go, well, God's not that holy or I'm really good. I want to say this. I don't know everybody's faith here, but you've got to wrestle with this question. You got justice and holiness and you got grace. You got to figure out how a holy and gracious God can let you be in his presence. You know, that what we hear today basically is as long as you're sincere and maybe you're part of a religion and you love your fellow man, that's good enough. That is not answering the question. That's basically brought God to your level. That's what that's done. God is now you. God is now you. I hope he's not me or you. We end up with the world that we have right now. And so this is the standard, and in the gospel, Grace will only be in proportion to God's holiness. The more that you see his holiness, the more you will appreciate grace. But here's the thing. Grace just doesn't leave you on the bench, right? Grace doesn't just expunge your record. Grace doesn't just go, okay, you're cleaned up, but you're out of the game. You're suspended. God doesn't want to leave you just there. He doesn't just give you a perfect record by grace through his Son he wants to work perfection in you. And so, this is this verse that seems a little puzzling. Oh, Lord, our God, you answered them. This is, you know, Samuel, Moses, Aaron. You were a forgiving God of them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. How do we get, how do we get that, you know, an avenger, but you're forgiving? What's that talking about? Is not God punishing them with wrath. That wouldn't make sense. It's talking about the fact that God would not leave them alone in their current state. He would not leave them at their current state of holiness and obedience. Have you ever longed in your heart to say, you know, I wish I could be less of a 
less of a um, envious person. I long for the day when I could be more of a gentle person. I long for the day where I could be a, a more generous person. I long for the day where I could be someone that's bolder with the truth. I long for the day where I could be someone that's more merciful. In your heart, there's someone you want to be. Each one of us here. There's someone you want to be. And you're not getting there. And you're going to keep working at it, and maybe you'll move an inch. You, you need something supernatural. You need a God who is holy to work in you and do what you can't do. And that's what he does. You know, the Bible sometimes is called discipline, but it's not discipline punishment. It's this fatherly correction. It's forming someone. I mean, the book of Hebrews says this. For a single offering, it's talking about the offering of Jesus. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those that are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit bears witness, this is the covenant I will make with them. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. That's what you and I need. You know, if you, a standard of holiness, you could put the Ten Commandments everywhere. It ain't going to transform anybody. You need something to get in your heart. It's your affections. Augustine was right. You know this. Whatever's driving your life is your affection and your desire. So how does holiness become beautiful to you? How does injustice become ugly? How do the things that you do that you don't want to do begin to look ugly? That's what you got to do. If you're just going to sit there and go, darn it, I hate that I do that. I, I'm going to stop doing that. It's got to go deeper. God has got to write it on your heart. And this is what he does by his grace. He won't leave us alone. Amen. Amen. He won't leave you alone. I mean, it, sometimes it just drives us crazy, right? But here's the key I want to get to to round third and close. The key, one of the great keys, is what happens when we are in his presence. So if you've heard me right, if you want to be transformed, you've got to get into his presence. You can't get into his presence without grace. Once you're into his presence, he will transform you by grace. But how does that happen? Well, we hear a lot about prayer here, don't we? They called you. What's the verse say? It says that they, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel were among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. Maybe another way we could take it is from the book of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. It's about access. You know, there's uh, many of you that work on the hill, or you have worked on the hill, and, uh, you know, you get to go to places uh, where no man has gone before, right? You, you, you get to sort of, you have access to certain places. Those of us that go on the tour, we kind of walk around, we get to see stuff. But, you know, I see your photos, I see your pictures. You get to, you know, you, you get to go really, speaker's balcony, you know, you get to go here. Really cool places, access. Washington's all about access. You need access to God. He gives it through Christ. But what do you do once you're in there? You get access into the office of a senator and a president. You could stand there and just go, you wasted your chance. How do you begin to ask of God? Well, I'll tell you one thing. Moses and Samuel asked boldly of God. The, the more assured you are of the grace of God, the more boldly you will ask. That just goes hand in hand. But what we have here is it gets us, the transformation goes like this. First of all, we get into the presence of God. You know that you talk, act, dress, and behave like the people that you spend most of the time with. 
It's just the way it is. You ever notice that? You know, there's, you watch one of your friends makes friends with one of your other friends, and then that friend starts a joke like that friend. You know, we use similar language. If you're like Mike and I, we dress alike. You know, we like to be you know, blue blazers, and we, you know, it's just instinctive. No, we don't call each other up. We just sort of dress alike. That wasn't... Anyway, the other thing, you know, is desires. I already hit desires. You know what the old theologians used to call praying and communing with God? Intercourse. Spiritual intercourse. I'd like to revive that word. You know, we talk about sex all the time in our society, don't we? We're very comfortable talking about sex. Let's talk about spiritual intimacy. We're not so good with intimacy. (laughs) Let's talk about intimacy with God. When you are in the presence of God, do you feel like you can be intimate with Him? The grace of God, that's one of his gifts where you can say whatever you need to say. And that you pour your heart out and say things to him that would make a lover blush and hear things back to him. That's the second part of transformation. Presence, holy desires, but the other is renewed energy. If I asked you how many of you could think about one area of your life that you're not changing and you're just tired, because you know how it goes. We, like, got this area, and maybe it's a big area for you, and uh, we try all these different things, and then we give up on God. But we really never really tried God the way God would have us try him. You know, we, we tried this, we did this, I did my version, I tried to obey, I got in a group, I went to a church, I listened, whatever it is. But there's something deeper than that. And you're losing energy. In the presence of God, when you come before him, he re-energizes you to keep walking. I, one of our brothers, one of our members here, uh, we were at the volunteer brunch yesterday, and he said uh, something that was so cool about prayer. He said, um, I, I, well, first I said, how you doing? And he said, um, I've been kind of tired kind of worn out, but, but um, I did something kind of interesting. I set up, I thought he said 11 prayer meetings in one day. Now, whether it was prayer meetings in one day or two days, I don't remember what it was, but, you know, he talked about basically saying, you know, I struggle to pray by myself, so what I did is I set up appointments with 11 of my friends, and I just met with them, you know, maybe it was lunch, maybe it was dinner, maybe it was here. We met, and we just have a time of prayer, and he said, man, I feel so energized right now. I thought, hot dog. Man, what a, what a, I went to, sem, Mike and I went to seminary. You know, Mike's getting, you're getting a doctor of ministry, man. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever thought of that idea? I've never thought of that idea. What a great idea. But, you know, I, it's tough for me to get in the presence of God. Then get in the presence of God with some other people. But what happens is we get energized when we go before him. And we can start to get back on the horse. Listen. Let me say this to close. Don't give up. I got good news for you. Your holiness and my holiness ultimately isn't in our hands. God is the source. He's the power. And he's the one that said, he who began a good work will finish it. He will finish it. He will complete it. But let's not get discouraged and go, I'll opt instead for not a holy God. No. Because when you and I get before him and I'm sitting next to you and your jaw is dropped like this because you have never seen someone so beautiful and so majestic 
and so glorious. And you've never seen a company around him and a throne like that. I'll look at you and say, told you so. You'll look at me and say, told you so, because I need it too. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you're holy. We sing to you that you're holy. We long to be holy. I pray you would especially uh, strengthen those of us that feel weary. Lord, get us before your throne. In Christ's name, amen.